0: Allergy season is just around the corner, and Brio, the innovative air purifier, can help. Brio quickly removes common allergens, including pollen and pet dander, and deep cleans without filter clogging, so it's more effective than HEPA. Brio's long-life filters save you money, too. Breathe easy this spring with Brio, the advanced air purifier that's ideal for every room in your home. And get 15% off Brio using code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com. That's code IHEART at B-R-I-O AirPurifier.com.
1: This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A ThermoSpa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877 861 4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on site assessment. Enjoy
1: the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries
2: podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumblebee.
1: Like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends, every Thursday we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine.
3: You still think it's in my head,
1: but I'm walking with the dead. Today's case is one that hits pretty close to home for me. It's a case that happened in the church of a pastor that I know. This pastor happens to be the uncle of my best friend of 29 years. I first told this case for the Murder Diaries when we were a baby podcast. My best friend joined, and so did her cousin, David, the son of the pastor. We'll be including the phone call that we had with David exploring the impact of this case on the community and his family. We've grown so much since I first told this case, and it's so important to me that I want to do better by it. I want to tell it again. This is the case of Jennifer Ann Moore. Born in San Francisco, California on June 24th, 1975, Jennifer Ann Moore was living in Novato, California in 1989 when this case takes place with her mom, Sylvia. For reference, Novato is the last city in Marin County, bordering Sonoma County just to the north. To the south of Marin County is San Francisco. When you cross that Golden Gate Bridge, you're crossing into Marin County and if you go all the way through the county, that's when you're going to hit Novato. So Natalie, you know how much I like to include a little bit about who the victims that we speak about were while they were with us, while they were alive. But there's just not that much information on Who Jennifer was and what she was like in 1989. She was 13 going on 14, and there just isn't a lot of information out there about her. In fact, for this case, it was actually really hard to find very many resources, although I did. And of course, they're in our show notes. The one piece about who Jennifer was that I did find was in one of the articles, and it's their family friend Jan. And she says that Jennifer was, quote, the
2: sweetest. Just a good girl, end quote. That's actually something we've encountered countless times in cases that are older. It's almost impossible to find as many resources compared to more recent cases, say from like 2010 and onward. With that, Natalie, it was even difficult to find pictures of Jennifer.
1: As you know, I sent you a picture of Jennifer. If you could, I would love for you to look at
2: this school picture of Jennifer and describe it for the listeners. Right away, my first impression of Jennifer from the photo that you sent is she's so cute. She looks like the quintessential 80s 13-year-old with teased hair and curled bangs, and even what looks like the classic 80s lipstick. She's also wearing hoop earrings and a big smile that shows off her braces. Something else that speaks a little bit to who Jennifer was is that on
1: Thursday, April 13th, 1989, she called her mom crying after school. She was really upset because she had gotten a couple of C's on her report card. Her mom calmed her down and she encouraged her to go get herself some ice cream at the local Baskin Robbins on Nevada Boulevard. Remember, Jennifer is 13, almost 14, and she's in eighth grade at this time.
2: I see what you mean. Her reaction tells us that Jennifer obviously cared a great deal about her grades and school in general. While her mom's response is sweet and sympathetic, she's basically letting Jennifer know that a C or two isn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. And she's also using this to encourage her to treat herself on a day that maybe she wasn't having such a good day. That's
1: exactly it. Jennifer was responsible in her mom's eyes. And that's why when Jennifer wasn't home, when her mom returned home from work that day, she knew something was off. However, what's interesting in this case is that missing persons flyers or have you seen me flyers weren't being handed out until two days later. This is in large part because again, it's 1989 and it was believed that she could have been a runaway. They knew she left the house and didn't come back. The idea of Jennifer being a possible runaway all changed on April 17th, 1989. She'd been missing for three days at this point. As someone was driving by on Nevada Boulevard, they noticed large trash bags on the side of the road. Upon further inspection, they discovered that inside those trash bags was Jennifer's nude body. The only description of the condition and the way Jennifer's body was found in is in an article from 1989 from the LA Times. It's a quote from the police spokesman at the time, Scott Sibold. "Quote, it appears that she was probably killed elsewhere." She was in some garbage bags, partially in and partially out. Part of her face and head were still concealed in the bags, end quote. What was also found in those garbage bags was a big lead in the case. They found Sunday school-related leaflets. According to one of the resources, one of the policemen actually recognized the leaflets as something that their own child had used in Sunday school. With that, investigators turned towards churches. They map out what churches were along Jennifer's route from her home to the Baskin Robbins that day. That search led them to Bethel Baptist Church. At the church, they noticed four big garbage bins. Two of these garbage bins have their liners and two don't. The liners that they found in the bins that actually had their liners ended up being the same bag that Jennifer was wrapped in. Bloodhounds are then used to get a scent on Jennifer, and those bloodhounds lead investigators right back to Jennifer's house from the church. That meant to them that something happened right in that area. The route that the bloodhounds led investigators back to Jennifer's house through also showed them that Jennifer had cut through a creek area that was behind Bethel Baptist Church on her way to that Baskin-Robbins. They begin their investigation honing in on Bethel Baptist alone. They begin by speaking to the pastor there. And yes, this is my friend's uncle. He shows them a weird coffee stain in the library. And what's even weirder about this stain is that no one had even bothered to pick up the coffee cup that had caused the stain. It was still there on the floor. What's even more is beverages weren't allowed in the library. So this idea of a coffee stain and a mug just sitting on the floor was highly suspect. So a crime lab comes in and they test that stain. They found blood and bleach. It's very clear to investigators that the coffee was spilled clearly to cover up something else. Investigators continue their search of Bethel Baptist Church, and that's when they find Jennifer's brown bomber jacket in the clothing donation bin. They even find the little rubber bands for her braces in the pocket. This also confirmed it was hers. The pastor tells investigators that he remembers when he got there on Friday morning that the church door was not locked, and in fact, it had been left ajar. That, of course, led investigators to wondering, who could have left the door ajar like that? There were three options. The youth pastor a teen helping the youth pastor garden, because the youth pastor actually happened to be the volunteer groundskeeper as well, and the janitor. The teen that had been helping in the garden did have a bit of a record, but he got picked up at 6.30 p.m., so he had an alibi that checked out. Now, the youth pastor was a 29-year-old named Scott Williams. By all means, Scott seemed to be an upstanding citizen. He was a past Marine. He was a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, the volunteer groundskeeper. And more than that, he owned a gas station slash convenience store in the area. It should be noted that he actually posted Jennifer's missing persons flyer in his gas station convenience store. Scott readily admits that he had been the last to leave that day that Jennifer went missing. And more than that, he didn't
2: have much of an alibi. And now a word from today's sponsor. Just when I think I've heard all of my mom's stories, she goes and surprises me with yet another story about an adventure she had when she was younger. That got me wondering, how many other stories don't I know about my own mom? And that's why I got my mom StoryWorth for this Mother's Day. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories, but most importantly, it preserves them for years to come. Every single week StoryWorth emails your mom, someone you love like a mom or a mother figure in your life, a thought provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought of, like, what's the best advice your mother gave you? And I particularly love this one because I didn't really get to know my grandma growing up. She passed away when I was a baby. And while my mom has told me a lot about her, I'm sure that by asking her some of these questions, I'll get to know her a little bit better. And at the end of one year... StoryWorth compiles all of those questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book for the whole family to share for generations after generations. I'm just looking forward to my kids and my kids' kids learning about my incredible mom and my amazing grandma. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save... $10 on your first purchase when you go to StoryWorth.com slash diaries. That's S-T-O-R-Y W-O-R-T-H dot com slash diaries to save $10 on your first purchase. StoryWorth.com slash diaries.
1: He says, Hey, maybe I should take a polygraph test. Law enforcement agrees. He takes the polygraph test and he fails. The polygraph examiner says to him, you killed Jennifer Moore. And that's when Scott admits it. Some of the resources also reference a rope burn on his hand that he showed them. With this failed polygraph, cops go to his house and they speak with his wife. And she says that, you know what? Recently, he racked up a huge bill with 976 phone numbers. Yes, those old school 976 numbers from the 80s and 90s that were essentially SCX hotlines. What was most concerning about this bill for 976 numbers is that the number that Scott had been using was geared towards pedophilia. Now, we hope and assume that these were actors acting and performing as children, which is still extremely gross, but we felt that that should be mentioned. Ultimately, with the failed polygraph test, the admission to the polygraph examiner, and the involvement in those 976 numbers, Scott was arrested on April 19th, 1989. According to a local newspaper out of Santa Rosa, California, called the Press Democrat, the night that Scott was arrested, he wrote a written confession saying, quote, I murdered Jennifer Moore. I let her into the library. I raped her, strangled, and bludgeoned her to death. I disposed of her body along Nevada Boulevard Thursday night. God have mercy. During his over two-hour-long taped confession, Scott says that while he was working in the church garden, Jennifer appeared. She helped him load up some weeds, and then he lured her into the church library, offering her something to drink. Then, as described a moment ago, he sexually assaulted her and murdered her by strangling and beating her with a baseball bat. In September of 1989, Scott received a life sentence for first-degree murder. Jennifer was laid to rest at Pine Grove Cemetery in Hood River, Oregon. Her mom, Sylvia, joined her in the afterlife December 4th, 2007, after suffering complications due to osteoporosis at just 52 years old. This is where I'm going to leave Jennifer's story. And now I'm going to replay the phone call we had in 2019 with my best friend's cousin David, the son of the pastor of Bethel Baptist Church. Now, this conversation is important in its description of community and family impact that this case had. We don't discuss Jennifer too much, although she is the focal point and the most important person in this case. We just felt that this conversation was really poignant in its discussion of community impact and what happened to the pastor. With that being said, here's the phone call. David, thank you for joining us.
3: Hey, Paige. Thanks uh, for having me on. Glad to be here.
1: Of course. I know it's not the most fun topic, but it sits with Melanie and I. Like, I'm sure it sits with you even more. And we're just dying to know just any anecdotes or or anything that you remember about this case. So let's kind of start with that. You know, what do you remember the most growing up, like living through this case with your dad?
3: Yeah, I mean, this whole story was one that it, it really shaped everything about my upbringing, the way I viewed Spirituality, the way I viewed like ideas of God and the devil and evil and humans oh, wow. and and sexuality, of course, too. Right now, we're thirty years away from from when this happened. I, w- I was eight years old at the time. You know, I have I have these memories of of every the whole church being in turmoil, uh, trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, and they took all of us kids. I, we we were all at the church and they took us into like the nursery and we just had to be sitting there for hours waiting, and uh, I had no idea why we were in there. It was I was just bored. I, w- I wished I had a, I mean Nintendo wasn't even invented then. I wish <laughs> right. had Was this to play. on like
1: a Sunday or when when was this that you guys were all like kind of just I, pushed into the nursery to wait?
3: It it would make sense. I I actually have no idea. I don't know. Oh. I don't know what day it was, but for some reason, a lot of us were at the church and something was going on. And I remember a bunch of us kids, like we weren't doing the normal church thing. We were, we were off in this room, sequestered and, and waiting for the adults. And, uh, and at some point, at some point, somebody explained to me that just in really basic terms, like something really awful happened. This, uh, this guy that you know, Scott, who Scott Williams, he had actually he had babysat all three of us kids in our family.
1: Yeah, that's so uh Like at your house? Like
3: Yeah. Yeah, he he stayed at our house uh for a long time and, and babysat us multiple times, I think. And so we knew we wow. knew who he was. We'd been to his house before. He lived out in the country. It was a I remember enjoying going there. What was
1: being babysat by him like? Would you have even known that he was capable of something like this in hindsight now? Or are you just like it was just like a regular dude? I felt really safe with him.
3: Extremely normal, like just really normal. Everything he was just one more church guy. Though those first days and weeks of of learning what happened wasn't was none of it making sense at all. Even I mean, I was eight years old at the time already. Yeah. But I I had seen movies and I had this idea that sometimes people, sometimes someone kills another person for a certain motive. And so that idea was right. in my head already. And I remember as people tried to explain it to me, it was always that, that big question in my head was, well, what's the motive? Like, I I, I get why some people kill people to, to, to get money or to get something from them. But in this case, it just this is just a guy that I know and he didn't know her and and why would you just kill a stranger? And so I at some point I started asking the people at church this question. And mm-hmm. the one answer that stuck in my head and I have no idea who gave me this answer. It was not uh, not my parents, but it was someone from church. I asked them, "Why would he why would he just kill a girl that he didn't know?" And the yeah. answer was they said, "Well, sometimes the devil just takes over." So that's that's a fucked up thing to put into a child's head about the I way think. the world
2: I wouldn't works. say to
3: an eight-year-old, but yeah. <laughs> and the way and I I mean I get what they were they were just trying to avoid talking about rape. Like because how do you how do yes. you talk to an eight-year-old about rape? And I I didn't know what that was. And so they just said, well, blame it on the devil. And they were they were trying to hmm. shelter me from the this horrible concept. But what they did was put this other idea into my head, which is even more terrifying. That any good Christian person who can be a decent human can be walking around and then the devil just pops out from behind a bush and takes over and makes you kill a person for no reason.
1: Right. That makes sense because this is somebody you knew and you're like, oh, well, he was good, but then the devil entered him and then mm-hmm. he was bad.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an old concept in, I mean, tons of different traditions. This whole blame the devil, the devil made me do it. And so that, I mean, that that formed the way that I thought, like, like I developed this this fear of of this of demons and devils for a long time after that, and it's it's something that I've talked to therapists about even. Uh, oh my gosh! Like it really planted this idea that that we live in this scary world where you can be a good person and then a, a demon can pop out of nowhere and make you do horrible things for no reason. Right. And and then of course years later at at some point right around when I was hitting puberty I think. I brought up, I talked about it to my parents because it would come up every now and then. And I mean, because it affected all of our lives. It, it, it sent both of them into a, a really deep depression. And I can mention some reasons why it affected them so much too. But, uh, the, we would talk about it as a family. So eventually at some point I learned that, okay, it wasn't just this magical devil comes and makes you kill someone. No, this guy decided to rape the girl.
1: I guess a question for David going into talking about Uncle here is when I'm reading these sources and and stuff about this case, I'm reading these articles, yada yada, and they say the pastor, they mean straight up your dad, right? There wasn't any yeah. other yeah, wow.
3: Yeah, he I was, was thinking, it's the not pastor. like
1: some huge church. Wow.
3: No, no, not at all. It was yeah, smaller church. I mean, probably had a couple hundred members, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was the pastor, and so so the as if all the stuff that we've talked about is not fucked up enough already. Right. The, the the really fucked up thing is the way the church as a community reacted to this, and the way they treated my dad about it. So after it happened, I mean, everyone is just in shock. And I mean, you know, like like anyone, someone you think like this is true crime. Every single story of true crime is that like, he seemed like such a normal guy. How could he do this? And so everyone's in shock for a bit. And then after that, there was this faction of the people of the church that went into this kind of massive denial and started blaming my dad for what happened more than the actual murderer who did this stuff.
1: What could they even say was your dad at fault for? Like, what?
3: Well, they said if he had been a better spiritual leader, none of this (gasps) would have happened. If he, had, no. if he he should have known he should have seen it coming he should have been a better pastor best spiritual leader to Scott and he should have been able to guide him out of this and so so it was I mean this kind of massive denial
1: and now a quick break to hear from one of this week's sponsors for so many people learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point or the most memorable part of their academic careers now for me In all honesty, I loved it and I even studied abroad, but I don't get to practice that much anymore. But now, thanks to Babbel, I can. Babbel is the language learning app that has sold more than 10 million subscriptions. It's an addictive, fun, and easy way to learn a new language. You can use Babbel to get ready for traveling abroad, or maybe you have some free time and you want to learn a new language in that free time. Babbel teaches you in bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. The language lessons are 15 minutes, and they are the perfect way to be able to learn on the go. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 languages, which include Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Finally, there are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, you can save up to 60% off your subscription to Babbel when you go to babbel.com diaries. That's babbel.com diaries for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life.
3: The, the closest at analogy that I can think of is from that Dirty John podcast. Uh, do you remember? Ooh, the, have, yeah. you, have you guys listened to that one?
1: Of Loved course. it. Hell yeah.
3: So the grandmother character, you remember her? Yes. After, right after the murder happens, she, I think she just goes into denial. And so she rushes to the guy who just killed her daughter And She says, I love I love you. I just want you to know that God loves you. I love you. It's all about love. I want I want to forgive you like that. Mm. That's not forgiveness. That's not spirituality or Christianity. That's that's denial. You don't just forgive someone for murdering your own daughter right after he murdered her when the like the blood is still fresh. That's not real forgiveness. That's that's you staring reality in the face and denying it. In in our church, there was this whole faction that that went into this collective denial. Uh, I think that the horror of what happened was just too much for them. So they ran away from it and they they had to find a scapegoat. They had to find someone mm-hmm. to, to blame it on other than the person who had actually done it. They said my dad was the real guilty person, and Scott, the murderer, he's just he's a victim here. He just he made one mistake. We need to we need to love him, we need to forgive him, we need to bring him back into the fold. And so they started they started going to cuz by this point Scott was already in jail he had already confessed you know as as I'm sure you guys went through the whole case and you know he did the we polygraph sure did. failed the polygraph mm-hmm. and so by this point he's in jail they were going to visit him every day and writing him letters and bringing him cakes and whatever and but yeah. like they were they were like let's love on Scott poor Scott Scott's a victim but but god len, Lenny Schmidt pastor len man he 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 really screwed up it's his fault he's the one who's I really a where they fault found- I wonder why they
1: found that easier to blame your dad than the actual murderer. It's just, it's hard for me to to think that way. It's the denial piece he was talking about. It's hard for me to even tap into why that would be easier. Yeah. It's still, I just, because we wouldn't. Because then it's just, I don't know. I
3: think sometimes just the idea of having any scapegoat is more important than who the scapegoat is.
2: You know, like if.
3: I mean, and if if it's something like sometimes it's just the reality is more complex, like in mm-hmm. Germany in the 1930s, you know, the, the complex reality is that things are shitty for a lot of different reasons. We lost the war. We got a bad deal on the peace agreement and the way the bankers arranged that. And it doesn't really matter who that scapegoat is as long as it right. deflects from, from from what reality is because sometimes reality is just hard to – to Reality's too hard.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow, and this is freaking powerful. You don't really think of the aftermath of murder like this, in terms of the way it affected other people and other families surrounding it, such as Not a just church the victim's community. family, right? Not just the victim and the victim's family, or you know, the murderer and the murderer's family, or what have you. This is incredible because this led your dad down a pretty, a, a pretty. Dark path for a little bit, right? This is like a deep depression yeah. for your for both of your parents.
3: Yeah, and I mean the way that our um, our grandpa Harry, uh, the grandpa that Melanie and I share, I talked yeah. to him about. I talked to him about this. I, I had to, I got to have a good conversation with him um, just a couple of years before he passed, and oh the topic the topic of this came up, and I, I really love the way that the grandpa described it because we talked about how it, how much it affected my dad because he mm-hmm. took it to heart like he knew I mean he knew it was bullshit he knew he wasn't guilty for someone else's murder but a right. different because he is he's a sensitive person and he's a conscientious person there's that other part of him that takes it to heart and thinks hey maybe all this horrible shit people are saying about me maybe this is right maybe this is true mm-hmm. and so it uh, it sent him into a really deep depression uh, he had to be institutionalized at one point and uh cuz he never learned to deal with that depression it just kept getting worse and worse uh but what grandpa said when when the topic came up he said yeah you know i th- i think that affected your dad because your dad he's a conscientious person cuz he cares about other people and and he mm-hmm. he wants to do the right thing and and if if there's any Possibility that he might be at fault or might be involved, like he wouldn't be able to handle that possibility, no matter how crazy that possibility is. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Grandpa here, but but the key phrase was that your your dad. That's, I'm sure he'd be okay. It was with your that. dad. Your dad's a conscientious person, and that's why this affected him. Like basically, if my dad had been more of an asshole, <laughs> he would have been able to get over it <laughs> more mm-hmm. than he'd
1: right and tell everybody. F you, I know better, and right. whatever, and just leave. But it affected right him, back. and he wanted to feel like he was doing right by his church community, and this obviously made him feel like, you know, oh my gosh, what if I wasn't, including Scott yeah.
0: himself?
3: Yeah, I. Uh, but I, yeah, <sighs> I, I have memories of those days of of that internal conflict, and and I remember seeing, I remember one one woman confronting my mom as church was getting out she walked up to my mom and i'm I'm sure I remember it because it was because it was difficult to, to see it as a kid like because your parents are just these these mm-hmm. amazing all-powerful mm-hmm. figures and so seeing someone attack That's right
1: and make everything man, right. when
3: you see someone attack one of your parents it's it's bad already and this woman was just telling my mom off like I mean I, I couldn't tell you what she was saying but it was I'm sure it was something related to like like come on just fess up it's your husband's fault that this all happened and something like that but i remember my mom just being in tears she just it you know, was just a mess and it, it like it it really fucks you up as a kid to see your parent cry and especially like just to see your parent defenseless and, and just breaking down and and this woman was just and attacking her for no reason, and and I didn't know that at the time, it, it just made no sense. Like why
1: wow, what a fine Christian lady telling your, your mom off. Like what the actual hell? This makes no sense. Yeah,
3: it was it was it was just made no sense in my head. It was it was really bizarre.
1: I don't think it makes sense in most people's heads. Like adults, no, I can't child. make sense
3: out of any of the, but, the church mentality, but that's really but, hard for me.
1: That's the biggest piece of this when he's saying it doesn't make sense. He was eight years old. Right. Like what like even an eight-year-old knew better than this adult lady? It's nuts.
3: I don't know. Speaking of things making sense or not, I I don't know how much you guys managed to research on, on Scott's mm-hmm. background after the fact of stuff that came to light. Did did you guys go into that already? So
1: the background that I was able to find is that. He served as a Marine and that he owned like a convenience store in town. I don't know if you can cooperate that for us, by the way.
3: So yeah, that's that's all true. So what I know though from mm. from what from talking to my parents, and I don't I don't know at what point all this information came out, but it turns out that that everything that this guy did makes perfect sense from a criminological perspective. Like you you don't need you don't need a pastor to be the guilty party, and you don't need a devil to uh, possess this guy and make him do it. It like everything about this guy's childhood and upbringing brought him to this point. I mean, obviously, not, nothing forced him to do anything, but but his story is it's very typical. Right. He he had to he had to be a parent to his mother. He his father was gone, absentee father. He he grew up with his mother. His mother was an uh, extreme alcoholic, like, not even functional, just uh, a drunk. Just all this typical stuff that makes a human being into a, a serial killer. Yeah. And I mean, for all we know, if things—I mean, I, you know, it's—you know, you can never say what would have happened. But but if things had happened differently, who knows? If he had not gotten caught, this could have been the first of many. You, you never know. There was a, a television show— that was about true crime, and they had an episode based on this case. And uh and they oh, really? came across something I think it was called I yes. Detective. Yeah, I right? like the letter I, I detective. Because they had this this little shtick in there where they would uh have you guess. They had a, a multiple choice question, and you had to guess which uh thing might be true. Like who who would you first question? The pastor? But I watched it and and At different points, he says, who would you first question and who would you where would you think to look for the evidence? And and so in that show, they come up with something that uh, that that my dad had told me at some point that Scott had. It turns out that his uh, phone bill had a bunch of 900 numbers on it, like, you know, sex phone, phone sex. Yeah. And the version I heard was (laughs) just that he had been doing phone sex. And i like, you know, back this is back before Internet porn or anything. And so, of course, that adds in my head to this idea that, okay, someone who's a really, just a really sexual person is a possible rapist because he's doing phone sex. And then the eye detective actually explains this added detail. Okay, it, it wasn't just 1-900 numbers, but it was numbers of simulated phone sex with minors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a case that that's really applicable. I mean, you know, a lot of people have never lived through a murder, but... But I mean, we've all lived through themes like this of of denial of reality, themes of scapegoating. We've all been around people who who look for a scapegoat or blame it on the devil or blame it on whatever group of people. But uh, like, yeah, evil is around us, and and there are ways to fight it and understand it. It's not this mystery that can just take over any human being. Like, there are ways for us to to fight for humanity and fight against evil. And I'm sorry if that sounds too mythological in Lord of the Rings, but but I really think that's true.
1: No. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you so much, David. Good to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at The Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at themurderdiariespodcast.com
2: and pod themurderdiariespod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing.
1: Your five stars mean everything. And until then,
2: stay safe. Bye.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A ThermoSpas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit ThermoSpas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.